Choice is brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's noon on the first Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3. Various other frequencies, and now joyfully on DSTV channel 838. I'm Gori Bose Taylor. And I'm Matabata, and I'll be assisting Gori from now till uh, 1 o'clock. Oh, I thought I'd be assisting you, Matabata. No, I'm I thought ca- you were the boss. I'm the captain. <laughs> This very happy hour, Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, gives us a bag full of the best in fiction and non-fiction. Peter Soul ponders Ramaphosa's Turn by Ralph, gosh, I can't say his name, Mataga, who wonders whether Ramaphosa can pull South Africa out of our current quagmire. Yes, says the author. Melvin Minar finds happiness in his latest favourite novel, Happiness, by Aminata Former, while Vanessa Lemstein reviews two novels by lauded and applauded South African writers, Craig Higginson's The White House and Maya Flowers' Patagonia, A Fugue. John Hanks, happiest holidaying in the vast spaces of the Karoo, finds a super production in Mitch Reardon's Wild Karoo, A Journey Through History, Change and Revival in an Ancient Land. Leslie Beek, cautious about animal stories for children, praises Gareth Patterson's beautiful Born to be Free, a true tale of three lion cubs and two other books. Sidney Moritz declares The Death of Truth a Little Gem, written by Pulitzer Prize winner Mashiko Kakuyu, while Balatamain Sheila Chisholm is kept on her tippy toes by the bio- biography David Poole, A Life Blighted by Apartheid. Do listen up for our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two Wordsworth Books 250 Rand vouchers. Andrew Marshbacks, a big bag full of the best in fiction and non-fiction. Hi, Gary. Well, I've got some fantastic books here. They're all starting to come in for the Christmas season. And it's Christmas early this year. I think the star book in the shop, and it's a book that is selling extremely well. And it's a book that people have been waiting for for a long time. It's called An Elephant in My Kitchen by Francois Malby Anthony. Now, you all know the book The Elephant Whisperer, which has sold in the millions. It's a book that sells still. Wonderful book. Well, the author died very sadly just before a new book was coming out. And his wife has decided to write a book about her life and him. And it is absolutely wonderful. It's about animals, elephants, rhinos, living with animals, conserving them, death, life. It is just beautiful. If you enjoyed The Elephant Whisperer, you, will, you are going to love this book. You really will. It's called An Elephant in My Kitchen, What the Herd Taught Me About Love, Courage, 
and Survival by Francois Malby Anthony. And it is 290 Rand. That is an absolute must on your bookshelf. And if you have any animal lovers out there for Christmas or who just want to read a good book, this is the book to get. It really is absolutely outstanding. And she's French, by the way, which is quite astonishing. She found herself living in Africa on a game reserve, but she fell in love, you know, and she fell in love with Lawrence Anthony and lived her life with him and grew obsessed about conservation. This is a brilliant book, An Elephant in My Kitchen, and it is 290 Rand. Right, I've got a couple of fiction titles here. I've got one that's absolutely ideal for any book club. It's called Wishes Under the Willow Tree by Phaedra Patrick, and it is a book that just entrances you from the beginning. It's a man who's fallen out of love with the wife. The wife has just left to find herself, and he runs a small jewelry store in the mall, and he doesn't know what's happened to his life. Everything seems to have gone wrong. And then suddenly his daughter joins him, and she's quite alive. Why? He wasn't expecting her, and she infiltrates herself into his life, and slowly but gradually his life starts changing for the better. So as you can hear, this is a, a lovely, warming, uh, life-affirming read, perfect for a book club, perfect for anyone who wants just to relax with it. It's called Wishes Under the Willow Tree, A Season of Second Chances by Phaedra Patrick, and that is 315 Rand. And while we're on the fiction, I'm not sure whether I've mentioned this before. I don't think I have. It's one of our staff choices in gardens. Uh, it's a book that we really love. Uh, it's called Softness of the Lime by Maxine Case. It's been out a little while. She did that book that won the 2007 Commonwealth Writer's Prize for the best book in Africa. She writes beautifully. This is set in 1782 in the colony of the Cape of, of Good Hope. Traders, politicians, farmers, and fortune seekers compete for land, goods, and power. It is here that a wealthy Dutch heir finds himself drawn to Lena, a young slave he has inherited from his father. As you can, I'm sure, guess, things develop from there. Wonderful book, good reading. It's our staff choice, and it's 220 rand. Softness of the Line, Lime by Maxine Case. Then I've got another couple of books here that are really interesting. These are books that for people who are fascinated in, in abstruse scientific things. This is a must-read. It's The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, where they go through all the latest research and what's happening with paleontology and the people who are digging up the bones, etc., putting together the case of why the dinosaurs ruled for millions and millions of years and how come they went extinct. There have been so many theories about this and he analyzes everything, brings the latest theories in and gives a very reasoned uh, book about the dinosaurs. What happened? Where did they go? Why did they die out? So it's one of those books that anyone who is fascinated by the period and by archaeology will love. So it's by Steve Brissate, and it's called The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, The Untold Story of a Lost World. And it's 310 Rand. And that's all we've got time for today. Happy reading. Keep well. Cheers. Peter Soul, A Positive Political Outlook in Ramaphosa's Turn. Ramaphosa's Turn by Ralph Matreka is published by Tafelberg. 
In it, Mateja asks if Cyril Ramaphosa can pull South Africa out of the quagmire we are currently drowning in and restore it to the status of rainbow nation when led by Nelson Mandela. He points out the South Africa of 2018 is divided and caught in a web of state capture, corruption, poverty and despair. The Zuma years have left the country and its institutions battered and bruised and the author asks if Ramaphosa, having been anointed by Mandela as his successor 20 years ago, is capable of bringing about the new dawn. Matecha is no pushover as he meticulously sets out to analyse Ramaphosa from the time he lived in a small village in Venda as a student activist through his trade union years and the Codessa negotiations to when he became Jacob Zuma's sidekick as Deputy President of the Republic. Last December, Ramaphosa took over a bitterly divided ANC. At their conference at Nazarek, he was elected president of the organization with a razor-thin majority and is now surrounded in the executive committees by people of questionable character who are ready to pounce should he do something they disagree with. Mateja maintains Ramaphosa faces both risks and opportunities. The risks are within the ANC and the opportunities outside the party. Ramaphosa has feet in both camps and the risk is that when he brings to the ANC a justification from outside, he will face resistance within the party by those who want to retain the liberation character of the organization and its inward-looking leadership. As a leader who did not rise to power because his own political agenda was approved, he has to focus on building his own base and defining his leadership. The two main groups he can rely on are the so-called Premier League, consisting of shady individuals with questionable pasts and corporate South Africa. The Premier League will hope that being close to Cyril will improve their tarnished image with the private sector. While Zuma only kept the company of those who were stealing with him and keeping him out of prison, Ramaphosa has many groups around him who consider him their friend and he's doing what he can to please them. His biggest challenge is not from the opposition parties, as we've seen, but from within the ANC. While working towards the election next year, he has to stabilize the party and make a reliable power base within it to ensure he can make decisions without resistance from his comrades. In addition, he has to deal with Zuma's parting gifts land expropriation without compensation, and free tertiary education. Both have serious implications for the fiscus and the private sector adding considerably to the government's mounting debt. This will result in the higher cost of borrowing not only for the government, but also the financial institutions in the private sector eroding returns on investments. To sum up, Ramaphosa has an almost impossible task. On the one hand, he has the battle within the ANC, and on the other, he has to ensure he does not offend the party to the point it rejects him. He has to tread carefully, at times changing colours like a chameleon, in order to fit into prevailing circumstances. The ANC needs him to put it back on the road of common sense. Mateja says he wrote the book to explore whether Ramaphosa could reinvent the ANC while remaining within it. He writes he believes Cyril can do it and that he will win the election next year with a small majority.
but not without the risk of the house collapsing over his head. Ramaphosa has been waiting many years to be president. At last, it is his turn, and Matecha concludes by asking if the ANC will allow him to turn the party and the country around. And that was a good positive <laughs> political read. Melvin Minna, happiness is all yours. One does not pass by a book that teases you with a title that simply says happiness. And if you've read anything by the remarkable Aminata Fauna, you'll jump in and on for the ride. And what a glorious journey she has charted in this brilliant novel about love and contentment, new and old, in a world of diversity, the human condition, and our association with the animal world. The book is a great introduction, too, for Aminata Fauna, who is in town this week for the Open Book Festival, taking part in a few piercing conversations. Don't miss these, and don't miss this delicately crafted novel. Happiness is so carefully structured, so driven by enlightened passions, that it sweeps you along and leaves you with a wondrous feeling of fulfillment. It turns the title's tease right back onto the reader. The scenario has the vividness of a movie script, thanks to Fauna's finely crafted descriptions of people and place, especially the specific London setting where the novel plays out over days. The story is about chance and how it turns on the fine-tuning between people, extracts humanism's elusive web and harmonizes needs, and introduces, as one main actor, an enigmatic animal. In the story, a famous Ghanaian psychiatrist, Attila, is in London for a keynote speech at a conference on trauma. He also has to check on the daughter of friends who hadn't called home in a while. It turns out that during the immigration crackdown, the daughter's young son had disappeared. Jean, an American researching London's famous covered urban foxes, is in the city putting distance to her past and her family. When they meet again, accidentally, the bond is made. They jointly start searching for the missing boy. Jean's network, mainly West African immigrants working London's back streets, become volunteer fox spotters and boy searchers. They are a colourful human bunch, security guards, hotel doormen, traffic wardens. And as the hunt continues, Attila and Jean's friendship develops to much more. The search for the boy and the tracking of the evasive foxes drives a dramatic, if delicate, story. Parallels with the individual character's personal pursuits sets a soft symbolism in motion, giving the novel an exquisite taut weave. The prose heaves you along. The power of Fauna's novel is established in the vivid Dickensian realness of the London underbelly she sets up as a kind of out-of-sight, out-of-mind environment, where the immigrants and urban foxes live unnoticed, unnamed, by bourgeois society, literally beyond Waterloo Bridge. The search for the boy, for example, takes on a detective-like exploration of dark streets and parks. Finely crafted, focused and often fiercely poetic language propels the story of love lost and found, personal history, past sorrow and future joy. Fauna constructs sentences that hold you in their grip as subtexts weave their way to the surface and significance shifts. Graceful optimism sweeps the plot along. The pursuit for happiness, despite contradictions, is ever a gratifying task. The tensions of social and personal incongruities become a mild moral issues about value. How we live with one another 
and all living creatures. Happiness, Fauna suggests, is not only an ongoing chase via the obstacles of contradictory human conditions, but something that will shift and call for understanding and compromise. The way Fauna has fully drawn the two main characters, the urbane Ghanaian Attila and the American Jean, and how the incongruities lock, not to mention a sly detailed observation of the evasive foxes, make happiness, published by Bloomsbury, of the sharpest books you'll read this year. I'm taking my copy to be signed by the author, whom I greatly admire, at one of her appearances during the upcoming open book talk. Vanessa Levenstein, two novels by two lauded and applauded South African writers. Award-winning writer Craig Higginson's novel The White Room is the story of a novelist, Hannah Mead, and her relationship with her student, Pierre. The novel spans time and continents. The idea was initially explored in a play Higginson wrote, The Girl in the Yellow Dress, and indeed the theatrical genre is a construct in the novel. Hannah herself is a playwright and has invited her former student, lover, to the opening night of the play, which is about their relationship. Interesting concept, but there were just too many themes filling each page. Genocide, apartheid, suicide, narcissism, sexual and emotional trauma, lies, truth, love, repentance, which is not to say the book wasn't interesting. Just for my liking, less would have been more. After reading the book, I did what we all do, a Google search, and discovered Malcolm Perky had directed the play. I was interested in his take on the novel. I've just read The White Room by Craig Higginson. And I confess to a deeply partisan interest. I was the developing director for The Girl in the Yellow Dress, which was a play that had its world premiere in 2010 uh, and was a co-production between Live Theatre Newcastle, various other theatres in Britain and the Market Theatre in Johannesburg. The Girl in the Yellow Dress concerns the relationship between a Congolese young man and a teacher of English who lives in Paris and what's remarkable about the original play is that it is constructed in five scenes and each scene is based on a grammar lesson and also based on aspects of lying and truth. The play was very very successful toured to many cities in the world and uh, played two major seasons of the market theatre for extended runs. What Craig has done has taken the play, imagined a playwright in the form of Hannah Mead and constructed the experience of a woman looking back on her life and her encounter with this young man Pierre and how the play plays out as a London success. This is a very curious and unusual activity for a writer, but I suppose feels like a kind of postmodernist exercise. There are very few writers that I know of who create plays, have successes with them, and then embed them into novels. And Craig has now done this twice, and I believe is working on other examples from other plays. So reading The White Room was a remarkable experience for me, but I am partisan. I was fascinated by the transformation of the information and how it ended up in novel form. And I think that, for me, the book is a remarkable account of very ill people and how they manage themselves and 
manage their narcissistic relationships with each other and themselves in trying to find some form of connection, some form of satisfying love and passion in a landscape that is filled with damage. And I don't believe there are many books post Brunk and Gordimer that can achieve some of the things that Craig Higginson is achieving. And the final verdict? Well, you'll just have to read it yourself. My next novel is Patagonia by Maya Fowler. She explores the search for one's roots and a sense of where we belong. Now, Patagonia is a parallel story about two men who flee South Africa to Patagonia. Tertius de Klerk, an academic, believes he has committed a terrible crime and so leaves one night in a panic to the remote South American region where his great-grandfather, Bassian, journeyed before him. Now, what is often problematic is when two stories are told simultaneously is that one is often more interesting, so one tends to skim through the less interesting plot. Both Bassian and Tertius have committed an act of betrayal, yet Bassian's secret is one that is deeper and so much more textured than Tertius. Somehow, as a reader, we know all along Tertius's terrible crime isn't what it seems. The journey that both men's partners take to find them is both physically and emotionally interesting, as both women shape and claim their partner's destiny. Four characters, and yet only one I rarely cared about, Tertius's great-grandmother Salome, whose fortitude and survival strategies would in themselves make a fabulous book. The subtitle Patagonia of Fugue is cleverly woven into the story. A fugue by its nature is a compositional technique in two or more voices that is introduced at the beginning and is repeated frequently throughout the composition. Afrikaans is to this day still spoken in Patagonia, which indeed has, if nothing else, a fugue-like feel. John Hanks, your happiest holidaying in the wild Karoo. Following a career as a ranger in Namibia and South Africa, Mitch Reardon has become a very successful writer and photographer. When his latest book was published earlier this year with the title Wild Karoo, A Journey Through History, Change and Revival in an Ancient Land, I was really looking forward to getting a copy for the simple reason that my wife and I love the Karoo and virtually all of our recent holiday destinations have been at various localities in this vast and fascinating part of South Africa and Namibia. Wild Karoo is a superb production beautifully illustrated with excellent photographs and written with a passion and enthusiasm which I hope will stimulate readers who do not know the area to pack their bags and start to explore the Karoo, a landscape unfortunately perceived by too many South Africans as bleak and unattractive. Mitch has written about the extraordinary and often surprising diversity of the Karoo's fauna and flora, but what I am sure will also have great appeal and interest are the informative and sensitively presented accounts of the history of the inhabitants of the land, some wonderful people who are far too often ignored and overlooked in books of this nature. One of the great appeals of the Karoo for me is the feeling of space and vast expanses of untransformed vistas. Mitch has captured this when he wrote, and I quote, Long, solitary walks through wild country are always exhilarating. At such times, my mind empties of everything except what I see, hear and smell, end quote. 
I empathise with those words, which reminds me of the time when I gave an illustrated presentation in Hong Kong, in which I described the enormous appeal of open spaces devoid of any buildings and people. A voice from the audience interrupted me and said, John Hanks, you've just described hell on earth. The Karoo, then, is not for the agrophobes. While Karoo has understandably focused on the major protected areas, probably still unknown to many listeners, such as the Tanqua Karoo National Park and Anaceburg Nature Reserve, Mitch has also embraced such treasures as the Bushman Karoo Rock Art of the Cedarburg, but has also introduced the importance of sound from the mating song of the bladder grasshopper, which can be heard up to two kilometres away, to the piercing whistles of Brant's whistling rat, even the well-known call of the Hardidah Ibis has been captured with the words their onomatopoeic braids like laughter mixed with pain. I have no hesitation whatsoever in recommending this book. I hope it will result in a second edition, and if there is one, I would urge the publishers to include maps of the areas described. I would also like to see more on the growing number of Karoo farms that have opened up some outstanding self-catering facilities and campsites from where the pleasures of solitude and the magic of clear night skies, unpolluted by electric lights, are a great way to start to get to know why the Karoo is such an attractive destination. The title of the book again, Wild Karoo, A Journey Through History, Change and Revival in an Ancient Land. It written by Mitch Reardon. It has just been published by Penguin Random House and Strake Nature in Cape Town, and it sells for 270 rand. Leslie Beek, the great Gareth Patterson, and two others, and a little mum's knee reading. Should you feel the need to do something impossible before breakfast, try writing an engaging book for 10 to 12-year-olds with a point and an important message and a good story and photographs of the actual thing you are highlighting and make it a gripping story with appropriate reading levels while you're at it. Gareth Patterson has achieved all of the above in his wonderful book about lions born to be free. I opened it with some caution. Books about animals of any kind, from pets to penguins, can be sad, maudlin even, soppy and earnest. This one isn't. Or alternatively, they can try to fit in too many facts about lions and the annoying did-you-know boxes that hardly anybody ever does know in advance. This story is told by Rafiki, a real lion cub, telling her own story and the story of her brother, Batian, and her sister, Furaha. Hear her voice. Today, we can still remember our mother's warm body. She always made us feel safe. But one day she went away and never came back. Our mother was killed by people because she killed one of their cows. She was trying to fill her belly so that she could fill our bellies. Lions are often forced to kill people's cows because over the years people have killed most of the wild animals like impala and kudu antelope, leaving little for us to feed on. That's on the first page. It grips a child's attention, starts the story and highlights the crux of the whole book, which is conservation of the remaining lions still left in the world who are in danger because of conflict with the most dangerous animal of all, but it is the story that keeps the child readers in the book 
Patterson pulls this off with perfect pitch. Here, Rafiki again. I gave birth to three cubs. I stayed with them in my hidden nursery place for two days. Then I walked down the valley to drink water at the camp and to see my brother, Gareth and Julie. I drank from the bowl outside the camp, and when I was finished, I called to Gareth. I wanted him to come and see me with my babies. A happy ending in an animal story with a dedication to the wonderful old man of lions, George Adamson, who first saved the lives of Rafiki and her litter mates. Most journeys in Africa are also made by children, though they get little recognition of this. I have two charming stories of journeys that do appear in books. The first, a read aloud for younger customers, is Yambura Waits for the Bus by Kath Alexander with delightful illustrations by Catherine Grunewald. The text is engaging, the story simple. Yambura waits and waits and waits for the bus and dreams of her go-go and the things they do together. Meanwhile, the people in the queue are most amusingly illustrated enduring various small mishaps until the bus arrives, the rain comes down, and Nambura saves the day by borrowing an umbrella and conducting everybody through the downpour. It's fun to read to children, and there are endless possibilities for inventing extra stories around the characters waiting and waiting and waiting. The other journey could be read aloud to nine and upwards, or on their own by good readers slightly older. In The Matatu, by Eric Walters and Eva Campbell, Kyoko and his grandfather travel together in a Matatu, a minibus taxi, a journey to the next town. To pass the time, grandfather tells the story of why dogs chase the bus. Goats run away and sheep, well, the sheep do nothing. This beautifully told and illustrated story has a twist at the end, outstanding dialogue, and is really funny as well as fun. I reviewed Born to be Free by Gareth Patterson, published in 2018 by Jakana. Nambura Waits for the Bus by Kat Alexander, illustrated by Catherine Grunewald and also published by Jakana in 2017. The Matatu by Eric Walters and Eva Campbell, published in South Africa by Strike Children in 2017. The great Gareth Patterson indeed. Cindy, Cindy Moritz, A Little Gem. It feels like this is a book American literary critic Michiko Kakutani felt compelled to write in a hurry. It's one she probably envisaged writing once Donald Trump became president of the United States and then urgently did so once she left her job as chief New York Times book critic before any of her insights became distant or dulled. I say so because it's compact, just over pocket-sized, and with its roughly 30 pages of notes at the back, just 170 concise pages. I imagine her gathering notes on all the books that came her way in her former role at the New York Times, and then hastily writing up the research, like a thesis, while it was still all fresh in her mind. In her own words to Vanity Fair magazine, published in the June 2018 issue, one reason I wrote this book is to call attention to those who, in their own times, found what Margaret Atwood has called the danger flags, she says. In this case, the denunciation of fake news and the citing of alternative facts by Trump and his White House. 
This small gem of a book serves as a brief commentary of a point in time, opinions and musings that the author wanted to record for posterity. Much of it is not original thought, rather a gathering of references, some of which the reader is compelled to look up on encountering. And this is what I found fascinating about her effort. She's created somewhat of a handbook for literary references around the topic of truth, on the role of truth in culture, a timeless record of the dangers surrounding an attempt to obscure or indeed muzzle what is true. As a daughter of a Yale University mathematician, she reveres science and the scientific method of research. Referring to George Orwell's dystopia in his classic novel 1984, where there exists no word for science because the empirical method of thought on which all the scientific achievements of the past were founded represents an objective reality that threatens the power of Big Brother to determine what truth is. In yet another literary reference, she writes, If citizens do not bother to gain basic literacy in the issues that affect their lives, they abdicate control over those issues, whether they like it or not. And when voters lose control of these important decisions, they risk the hijacking of their democracy by ignorant demagogues, or the more quiet and gradual decay of their democratic institutions into authoritarian technocracy. She doesn't hide her contempt for Donald Trump, but she does cast the net far wider in terms of time and persons. She refers on her first page and then repeatedly to Hannah Arendt, who wrote in her 1951 book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, that is, the reality of experience, and the distinction between true and false, that is, the standards of thought, no longer exist. She tackles the me decade and the rise of subjectivity, the vanishing of reality. Is it not surreal that a reality TV show host is running the United States? And the concept of filters, silos and tribes, touching on old and new media alike. This book is a keepsake. Yes, it's not wholly original content, but here Kakutani has created a time capsule of the zeitgeist of this era, one which no doubt will be referred to in the future when truth gets held captive yet again. What it can and should do is urge every reader to take responsibility to become truth literate, spread the word and not to feed the trolls. While we don't learn this at school, we should. I'm extremely grateful that she went to the effort to compile what for me is a handbook on the topic. The death of truth it may be called, but it may also be a spark for the revival of the same. Let's hope sometime soon. Sheila Chisholm on your tippy toes with David Poole's biography. For David Poole's biography, dance writer Richard Glastone, MBE, has chosen to highlight South Africa's nationalist government's apartheid policies rather than homing in on Poole's life, career and outstanding contribution to Cape Town Ballet's artistic life. It is good to be reminded about the effect those evil policies had on the lives of our country's people. However, to title his book David Poole, A Life Blighted by Apartheid, Gladstone implies that Poole's pigmentation prevented him from a successful career. That's surprising. Firstly, during Poole, 
and Johar Masval's training days, no calabar was practiced at UCT Bali School. Under Darcy House and her staff, Poole and Masval, about whom Gladstone writes extensively, trained and performed alongside every other Bali student, including myself. In 1947, a year before the Nationalist Government rose to power, Poole had left Cape Town for London for further study. Shortly thereafter, he joined the Sadler's Wells Ballet, where he gained fame as a character dancer. He finally returned to Cape Town in 1959. In 1950, in London, Mosevar quickly earned himself a place in the Sadler's Wells. There he too gained fame as a character dancer, later reaching principal level with the Royal Ballet, until he retired. Mosseval returned to Cape Town in 1975 and in January 1976 took up a post specially created for him as Inspector of Special Subject Ballet under the Department of Coloured and Rehoboth Affairs. He stayed 18 months before resigning to open his own private school in Parliament Street with branches in Powell and Mitchell's Plain. He taught his multiracial schools until he retired at the age of 65. Enough about Mosseval. This is supposed to be Poole's biography, and as such it disappoints. Gladstone has devoted too much writing to politics and Mosseval's. Gladstone's introduction and epilogue lay out numerous apartheid laws. He devotes another chapter to ways these laws were implemented and makes much mention of Poole's reclassification. He's brushed over Poole's part in introducing k Ballet's first professional coloured dancer and his weight behind starting Ballet for All. Instead, Gladstone places emphasis on Philip Boyd's part in running this project and renaming it Dance for All, as well as devoting space to former successful students of Dance for, for All. Years after Poole's death in 1991, aged 66, Gladstone's details activities in the lives of coloured people, even including several photographs of the 2012 Handspring Puppet Parade. Yet there is not one formal photograph of Poole, although in fairness there are a few of Poole in roles he danced. Neither does Gladstone stress that until 1964, when government established these arts councils, every dancer aiming to pursue a professional career was forced to leave the country. That is why Poole and Mosseval left. I also question why Glastone didn't interview Owen Murray, Poole's longtime partner of Veronica Paper, who under Poole blossomed into South Africa's finest choreographer. By giving vent to his political views, Glastone missed a rare opportunity to author Poole as an individual dancer, choreographer and producer whose wealth of knowledge lifted K-Pab Ballet to a company of international standing. David Poole, A Life Blighted by Apartheid, by Richard Glastone, is available through www.bookguild.co.uk or info at bookguild.co.za, priced at £9.9p 9 plus postage. And that's it then. As Melvin Minar said, it's Open Book Festival at the Fugard this week. He suggests you go to Aminata Forma and on Wednesday, September 5, to hear one of Book Choice's choice reviewers, Andrew Brown, in discussion with Jonas Bonnier and Karin Brainard. 
on Saturday, September 22, at 2 o'clock, at the Central Library in Darling Street, Dawn Garish, the great Dawn Garish, will be talking and writers will be reading from This Is How It Is, True Stories from South Africa, by the Life Writing Collective. And from me, Gory Bowes-Taylor, it's goodbye and good reading. Book Choice was brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable. And we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. If-